Welcome to Talking Tax, a Bloomberg Tax podcast. In this series, we're talking all about tax reform, the newly enacted changes that you should be aware of, and the implications for both practitioners and taxpayers. I'm your host, Allison Versprill, a reporter at Bloomberg Tax. Today, I'm joined by Tony Nitty, a tax partner at Witham Smith & Brown in Aspen, Colorado. Tony has close to 20 years of tax and accounting experience and is here today to discuss the recently issued guidance on changes to interest deductibility under the new tax law. Uh, first, I'll get into sort of a description of, of the tax law. So what it does, is it amends tax code section 163J to limit the business interest deduction to 30% of a company's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Uh, and that's for four years starting in 2018. Beginning in 22, we'll start to see that narrowed um, even further. The deduction, the de- deduction will then be limited to 30% of earnings before interest in taxes. Um, so, Tony, thank you for joining us, and uh, you know, we'll we'll start into some of these questions. Allison, thanks so much for having me. So, I wanted to first start off by asking, you know, what are the questions that were answered by the interest deductibility notice? Um, you know, it seems like there's still a lot that we we haven't had answers on. So. What are the questions that are answered, and what are the questions that remain? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you could tell just by the way this was drafted um, that this is kind of just the IRS's opening salvo in terms of, you know, starting to give tax practitioners the guidance that we really, really need with so many different aspects of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. But, you know, there's a lot of unanswered issues about the uh, interest expense limitation. This is you know, the single biggest revenue raiser on the corporate or the business side. And so uh, there's a lot of gray area. We got a couple things answered yesterday, uh, but certainly the notice still leaves us wanting, and I'll I'll get to that in a second. What got answered? uh, Probably two things that are most noticeable. Uh, Number one, you know, for those of you who work with consolidated returns, you know that under the old Section 163J earnings stripping rules limitations that were exceedingly complicated, um, we had not only limitations applied at a consolidated return level, but we actually also had kind of what we call super affiliate regulations, which basically said some groups that weren't even filing consolidated returns uh, had to apply these rules on kind of a consolidated basis, even though they weren't technically consolidated groups. And the one thing we found out yesterday is that the new regime, the new 163J, doesn't look like you know that's going to be the case. It says when proposed regulations come out, basically if you're not filing a consolidated return, you don't have to com- apply these rules on a consolidated basis. So that should you know provide some simplicity probably also some opportunity to game the system a bit. Um, But that was the first big thing answered. The second big thing that was answered uh, certainly is people were wondering, well, what happens to interest that was limited under the old regime and carried forward? You know, what do we do now with this new regime in 2018? Because it really is a a new regime. Uh, The old guidance, the old law was pretty much scrapped. And it makes very clear in the notice that proposed regulations will allow for a carry-forward of pre-2018 163J limited interest to now be kind of treated as interest expense newly incurred in 2018 and basically just kind of fall into the new regime. And if it gets used, it gets used. If it doesn't, uh, it'll carry forward under the new regime. So those are probably the biggest things that were answered uh, as far as leaving us 
wanting? You know, what didn't it give us? I mean, let's be honest. What everyone is clamoring to know about the new interest limitation rules are, you know, they don't apply to everybody. If your average gross receipts are less than $25 million, you're not subject. Um, but the real question is this ability for what we call real property trades or businesses to elect out of the regime. And when they use the term real property trade or business, uh, once News in 163J simply leveraged off the definition in the real estate professional rules of Section 469C7, which basically provides you know 11 types of real property trades or business, construction, reconstruction, development, redevelopment, leasing, brokerage, operations. You get the idea. But the point is, those rules, those definitions under the real estate professional guidance Right. They've only been applied historically for 20 years to individuals and usually small individuals, uh, you know, for that matter, because people who had, you know, a couple of rentals here and there and wanted to be able to take their losses. Now, whether or not someone's in a real property trader business is going to matter to the biggest businesses in America. And everybody is waiting to kind of figure out, well, what does it really mean? Who is and who isn't? in a real property trader business because it means we may be able to elect out of the interest limitation rules. And then the second aspect we're still waiting to hear is if you do elect out, the price you pay if you're in a real property trader business is you now have to depreciate your residential, non-residential buildings and your qualified improvement property over the ADS lives, which are typically longer under the alternative depreciation system. What no one knows is do you have to shift midstream if you've already been depreciating assets, or is it for new assets? And so those are the two areas everybody wants to know about. And yesterday's, or not yesterday's, but this week's notice 2018-82, we're simply silent on those issues. So yeah, this definitely leaves us wanting more, but it's a start. Right. And I kind of, I wanted to drill down a little bit and uh, something you said there at the beginning, you talked about um, the consolidated group issue. I know uh, practitioners at conferences in the last several months have sort of been hinting that that was going to be um, what the reg or the, what the regs would say. And you had said there's potentially some some room for gaming. Is that groups maybe trying to file as consolidated groups that weren't, or or can you maybe explain that a bit further? Sure. Usually, when you talk about gaming and consolidated return regs, you're talking about the opposite. Actually, if suddenly you know the consolidated return rules are really set up to make sure that. The ability to file a consolidated return is not effectively a year-to-year election, right? So if you um, make the election to file a consolidated, you're, you're pretty much stuck with it unless you revoke or, um, you know, your, your group terminates, I should say. You can't revoke until your group terminates. But there are ways you can effectively terminate it, and that is, you know, by inserting a non-includable corporation or something along those lines. And what you may find here is if people you know, could potentially, based on their specific set of, set of facts, if groups of corporations would benefit more by not filing consolidated, knowing there'd be no super affiliate rules, yeah, you could see somebody inject, you know, a foreign entity um, midstream into a group so that you no longer have an includable group of corporations under the 1504 uh, rules. So we don't know for sure until we see how the rules work, but it just means that, again, you may see with no super affiliate rules, uh, you may see, for, see, for example, more sibling, uh, brother-sister groups than parent-subgroups uh, being formed to take advantage of the interest limitation rules, potentially. Got it. No, that's interesting. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of kind of these types of little small things popping up, too. It's kind of, is this going to be an issue for gaming or 
or not in this area. So it's, it's interesting to make note of those things. Um, and then the fact I wanted to get back to something, you know, you talked about, there's still a lot of questions that that remain or some of the most important ones that remain. Um, and the fact that the IRS didn't go into specifics on, you know, these issues, how helpful is this guidance really to tax practitioners and companies that are trying to do some planning? To be honest, the most helpful thing about Notice 2018-82 is that it shows everybody in the industry that, you know what, the IRS is working on this stuff. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but what a relief it is to me when I just saw, you know, in my inbox, IRS issues a notice on, you know, the interest limitation rules because there is a body of new law that everybody is struggling to make sense of. And we've been told that, you know, guidance is going to come in on a slow boat. You know, 199 Cap A is probably the area where people are most eager. And we've been told those regulations or even any guidance won't be here until late summer. And so, you know, this interest limitation guidance, it's not earth-shattering. Like I said, there's a couple small things in there that are going to be important. But I think it just puts a lot of minds at ease that the wheels are in motion, right, that the IRS is is determined to help the tax industry do their job, taxpayers plan accordingly. And I think, uh, like I said, I know it sounds silly to say this in kind of the world of of tax law, but it was almost just a a nice gesture to see some guidance coming out because we know that we're going to need a whole lot more of that over the coming, you know, weeks, months, and even years. But in and of itself, again, there's nothing here that's going to change the way we do our jobs, but it's just good to know that things are moving forward. And so I wanted to talk, you know, you'd mentioned some of these specific areas that are addressed. You know, the IRS has said that it will address interest allocations for consolidated filers with exempt members, as well as disallowed interest deduction carry forwards when members leave or enter a group, you know, but it doesn't say really how it's going to do that. So I wanted to ask, is there a precedent the agency might rely on when it's, you know, developing these calculations? Um, or can, you know, can we expect to look anywhere to find some sort of hint on what they plan on doing? Yeah, sure. I think if you want to have an idea of how, for example, you know, a member of a consolidated group that has an interest limitation uh, under the new regime is going to be treated if they leave the group, I think you just look at the old proposed reg under um, – 1.163-5B5, uh, I think it was, if you look at those, you'd see that basically they keep it simple. If you have a member of a group and the group has interest that's limited, then you more or less just take that member, figure out the amount of interest expense they've had over the years, compare it to the interest expense the entire group has had over the years, and then multiply that percentage uh, by the limited interest at the consolidated basis. And that's what the particular member who's departing leaves with. That's their limited interest expense uh, that goes with them. And then I would expect the members that are coming into the group, you're going to see some type of, you know, surly um, application, similar to what we see under the the 1.1502-21 regs, where yeah, great, you come into a group with limited interest expense and the group has a bunch of taxable income or interest income, that's all well and good, but the new member probably won't be able to use their interest expense against anything other than adjusted taxable income that they contribute to the group. I think, you know, we'll have to wait and see, but I think they're going to keep it pretty simple, try not to write any new law, and so I think they'll leverage off the the old 163J-5 regulations 
just the same way I predict in a, in a lot of ways the new 199A regulations will probably leverage off old Section 199, right? So I think uh, I think we can look at the old regime for some pretty concrete uh, understanding of how things are going to go forward. Right, and I and I suppose as you're saying, I think that will help with some of these timing issues. I know they've said they want to you know have at least something out on all of these different areas by June 30th. So relying on some old Something that already exists will probably help with some of that that speed. And, you know, this kind of goes to a similar point. So the IRS and the notice, it more or less ended the debate over whether C-corporations could have investment interest and use that characterization as a way to sidestep, you know, the, the, new, dedu- the new limitation. But the notion said that, or the notice said that regulations will address whether partnerships in which C-corporations have an interest will be considered strictly business interests. Uh, so I just wanted to ask, is this an opportunity for partnerships under the new 163J? Well, it certainly could be. I mean, if you're telling corporations that by definition, all of their interest income and interest expense has to be considered business interest subject potentially you know to limitation but you're saying that you know a partnership um, we're not sure yet well they don't have that same default rule but we don't know how a partnership with a C corp partner is going to be treated well, depending on how those rules evolve you could absolutely see you know C corporation basically create kind of a joint venture format where you know, some of their uh, debt goes into a partnership uh, where maybe that particular debt at the partnership level could be categorized as investment interest because investment interest is not subject to the limitation. So if they're going to give leeway to partnerships, not to C-corporations, and don't find an effective way to kill that disparity when you have a partnership owned by a C-corporation, you're certainly going to see aggressive taxpayers trying to game the system to do whatever it takes to kind of minimize the impact of the limitation. And if that means forming a partnership so that the interest can be characterized as non-business interest expense at the partnership level and retain that character at the corporate level, you know, that's certainly something people will try. But and the regulations, to me, indicate that they're going to take whatever steps necessary potentially to, uh, to put an end to that. Sounds like a, another area to sort of keep an eye on moving forward. Um, and I think that gives us a lot to to think about and, you know, how we might see some of these regulations play out. Uh, so, Tony, I wanted to thank you again for joining us. It's been great. Uh, anytime, Allison. Thanks so much. Join us next time as we continue to talk with tax professionals about the implications of the biggest change to our tax code since 1986. Again, I'm your host, Allison Bruce Burrell, and this has been Talking Tax.